to Inside the Pastor Study. Uh, I am Pastor Jeremy. I'm here with Pastor George. Yeah, and we are excited to be back here with you. We we took the we took the Monday off this week to to celebrate Memorial Day. We're here recording on a Tuesday. Um, it, it might not even matter to you. You might not get to this until, I don't know, a year from now. Who knows? But welcome back with us. We're excited to be back in the studio recording and continuing on in this conversation uh, about uh, church history, uh, American church history particularly, and uh, that big question of how did we get here to this point in uh, the church where there are so many different denominations and we all seem at odds, and yet we all seem a bit similar. This is another challenge that we'll get to. It seems like there's not a lot that distinguishes a lot of these denominations, but there are still some denominations that are radically different than others. And so having this historical background that leads us to that gives us a chance to answer that big question of why can't we all just get along? Right. We are actually having a conversation in the office this morning about just some differences in denominational approach and uh, even an approach to worship. And there's a lot of those things that are definitely out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we'll cover some of those. We'll, we'll cover as many of them as makes sense for this. And we, we're trying really hard to hit that cursory view that gives all of the background you need to answer the question without going so deep into this history nerd stuff that, that you and I really both enjoy. Right. Um, but we know not everybody does. And so we're not going to go down as deep as we could. Um, if you are local to us, and this just sounds really fascinating and you want to know more of the nitty-gritty details, you can always contact either of us. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. Uh, inside, it's the same thing, Inside the Pastor Study. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you can always pose a question on that page if you're curious about something deeper that we've already talked about. At the moment, that page, a number of you are following it, and I post things, and there's no reaction to it. So I'm thinking that it gets out to you when you see it, but maybe not. So uh, check that out and interact on that. That's not just there to post when we're doing podcasts. Um, hopefully it also is a place to develop some community around the podcast as well. So uh, check in on that and uh, hopefully you can follow along. And you can also email us directly at podcast at marshcorner.com and uh, we'll try and uh, work your questions and conversation into ours. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So last time we were together, we did a bit of a tangent to clarify uh, some things in, in churches and how they operate. We were talking about these three major um, color dials, uh, like the hue and saturation contrast, and how those three things um, in, in the church context can help give some definition to why certain churches are different than others. Um, talking about things like uh, where you fall, on, where your church falls on the the role of your faith in the process of salvation versus the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talked about um, the the preference or the uh, the um, the focus on the local church versus the universal church. Um, and we also uh, talked. What was the third one we talked about? This is your quiz. Do you remember this one? Oh boy, no. Yeah, was I here? It was your illustration. Oh, it was. It? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it was. So this is how things work in the pastor study. We come up with these great ideas, and sometimes they stick long enough for the conversation, and then we move on. Uh, but you can check those out. That podcast still exists. Go back and listen to it, and, and see what the third to. one. See what the third one is, and then you can uh, interact with that. But it was helpful. It was very helpful for me to think through that. Those are things that we've talked about. Oh, I remember what it was. It was um, whether the church's primary function is for the evangelism of the lost, or if its primary function is for the worship of the saints. Exactly. Yes. And in all three of these spectrums, the idea is that your church isn't going to probably not going to be all the way over on one side of the dial or the other. It's not a one or a ten. It might be a four or a six or a seven. Um, but it's really helpful to be able to actually think about your own personal church experience with some of these things. A lot of us go to church, a particular church, because we like um, the people there, or we were attracted to the music, or um, we enjoyed the, a particular um, style of teaching. Um, but we don't always necessarily think about some of those bigger pieces behind what makes a church a church. Um, and we're hoping that we can kind of move in that direction so that you can think critically about the church that you're attending, whether it be Marsh Corner or, or another church, uh, so you can have a better answer behind just the why of why you attend. Um, so so those, that was a little bit of a detour, but we're heading back into history this morning. Uh, we, we had left off with the Second Great Awakening, and we're now moving into the 1800s uh, to this next major um, 
religious shakeup moment, which is a national shakeup moment that that has uh, that has implications really around the world. Uh, and so, obviously, with this huge uh, national shakeup moment in the 1860s, the church can't remain unaffected by that, right? Exactly. We remember we mentioned with the uh, with the Second Great Awakening, many of the issues that came out of that were social in their character. We mentioned that um, abolitionism grows, uh, the, the need for the move for women's suffrage grows. Um, you, you could even say that the temperance movement, which is the movement um, away from alcohol, uh, will get its start in that era. Mm-hmm. It, it really won't come to its full fruition until the 1870s, but still, you do have that... You do have that uh, the underpinnings of that starting yeah, there. Yep. Exactly. So... So all of those things are social, and you know we struggle with that in the current church in the United States. Is that how much of a social political action should a church take? Uh, but abolitionism really begins in the local church. It begins in mostly in northern churches, obviously, um, and it has a, a wide ranging effect. They, uh, one thing we we haven't talked about is we've. We've identified that we're talking about U.S. history and U.S. church history, and there is another church. I mean, there's the European church, and we haven't really spent much time on that, Um, but there's an echo effect that goes on uh, between both continents. Mm -hmm. Uh, We usually say that uh, heresies arrive from Europe about 40 years after they've been birthed in Europe here in the United States, Hmm. but the same is also true the other way, and that is that uh, many... Uh, many evangelical tenets, maybe many powerful movements that begin here in the United States uh, echo back into uh, into Europe uh, later at the time. So, I mean, you have uh, you have the the Great Awakening springing up here in the United States in like eighteen hundred. Uh, the focus on uh, abolitionism beginning at about that same time. The British catch that same flair. The British uh, move very quickly with the concept of uh, abolition. They move very quickly with many of these tenets that spring up. The evangelical church, as it's called, uh, actually begins by th- in reality in England. So mm-hmm. you have a William Wilberforce who is uh, a, leading, a leading member of parliament who actually moves England to a place of, uh, of uh, embracing abolition. And the end of slavery is early as 1805, I think it is. Huh. Does some of that echo come from the Wesleys? Because they're there in like Bath, England, and 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 they're obviously have you know Methodism has radically transformed the American frontier. Yes, it has, and Methodism is changing and affecting uh, England as well, because you know the the Wesleys actually never return to the United States; they stay predominantly in England. So you have Methodism. Bl- blossoming here in uh, in the United States, but you also have it blossoming in England as well. So there's a, a driving force of the Great Awakening mm-hmm. moving in both of those countries. But that that blossoming of social concern that comes with the Second Great Awakening creates some huge issues, and that whole abolition issue is divisive. Um, it divides the church, and you know we really we hate the concept of dividing the church, uh, but there comes times when you just have to divide when there are things that are just so great that you can't you just can't keep walking together. Hmm. Um, I I find this healing. You know, a lot of us think that churches should always be united, and there's this driving force in the United States, uh, predominantly because of the Christian church coming out of the Great Awakening that says, you know, why can't we all just get along and shouldn't we just have one huge denomination and do away with all labels like uh, like Presbyterian and Baptist and, and you know, here we are at a community church saying, you know, get rid of all labels, let's sure. all be non-denominational. And I'm moved by the fact that uh, in Acts chapter 15, a passage of Scripture that we don't actually look at a lot, Right. I mean, we look at the first part of Acts 15 with that great uh, council of the church where Gentiles are welcomed in, but we miss this thing that happens at the end of Acts 15. At the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, two really good friends, say, let's go out on another missionary journey. 
And Paul says, yeah, great idea. And Barnabas says, let's bring Mark with us. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, absolutely not. And the scripture says that their disagreement was so great that they split up and went with different partners. Barnabas took Mark. Paul takes Silas. So there's a huge rift that takes place even in the evangelistic church of the of the book of Acts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And God doesn't slap Paul around and say, hey, you did this wrong. Isn't that interesting? There are so many of these moments in the New Testament that we read our modern um, sensibilities back into and we assign uh, good or bad to them. I, I've always, like the famous one for me has always been Thomas, where you know, we talk about doubting Thomas as, you know, and we disparage him a bit because he needed to see the wounds of Jesus before he could believe. And Jesus just says, after he actually comes and shows him the wounds, hey, blessed are those who don't need to do, have this process. He never actually says, you know, shame on you, Thomas. Right, right. And, uh, you know, this is another one of those moments. Like you see that the disagreement is heated. Um, you actually see reconciliation of the relationship later, because obviously you've got the book of Mark, and you, ha- you know, and, you Mar- and Paul talks about Mark's usefulness in his um, Second in, Timothy. In Second Timothy in his final letter, um, and so there's obvious reconciliation, but you don't necessarily see the uh, this was wrong, and we wish we hadn't done it. Right conversation. Right, right. exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so here's this division that takes place in the United States. It's predominantly moved by the concept of abolition. It actually begins dividing the church as early as 1834, uh, because in 1834, there is a, uh, a, a bishop of the Methodist Church from the state of Georgia who is going to be seated as bishop, and he owns slaves. Um, actually, he makes this really odd argument that I've heard a lot of times. It was like, uh, well, he actually didn't own the slaves. His wife did. And I've heard that about George Washington's slaves. Uh, you know, he actually didn't own the slaves. Right, his so wife did. It doesn't matter. He Robert E. Lee it. didn't yeah. actually own his slaves. His wife did. Isn't it amazing? He was still willing to have them in his house, right? Right. So, so his wife owned slaves, and, and the northern churches of the Methodist church became so incensed that this man was going to be seated as a bishop that they blocked his seating based upon his ownership of slaves. And that sent all of the southern churches scurrying. Hmm. So suddenly we have a division. We have a northern Methodist church, and we have a southern Methodist church. And that pattern is going to be followed uh, next by the Baptists, mm-hmm. who become a, a, um, a um, northern Baptist convention and a southern Baptist convention. And it also works on the Presbyterians. The Presbyterian Church will divide north, and they'll actually call themselves the Presbyterian Church. And then there's a Presbyterian, a Southern Presbyterian Church is what they call themselves. They actually existed uh, all the way up to the 1980s. Hmm. Um, what we don't see, though, is there's actually three divisions in each of these groups, because uh, especially with the Methodists, what happens is uh, they split north and south. You have Southern Methodists. But in the north, there is a faction of the uh, the Methodist church that says we should never allow this idea of, of slavery to be part of what we're doing. Well, there's another group that's just saying, oh, you know, that was really unfortunate that we split, and why can't we all get along? And they split again in the north. And the group that says we, we will not tolerate slavery in any way in our church is called the Wesleyan movement. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the Northern Baptist, the Northern, excuse me, yeah, the Northern Baptists. You have the Northern Methodists who just, they don't go by the name Northern Methodists. They consider themselves the original church. Just the Methodists. And they are the Methodist church, right? right? So, so you've got now three splits. And you see that kind of thing happening all over the place. And... I think that it's illustrative of how destructive division is because you you don't end up with clean breaks. You don't end up with two factions. You end up with three. Hmm. And, uh, and it, it always works that way because uh, in any group of believers, I, I think that you have um, what I call libertarian 
believers, and the libertarian believers are kind of pragmatic in their faith, um, and, and they take that approach of, you know, I would never own slaves, but if you want to own slaves, I think that's odious, but who am I to get in the way of your worshiping with me? Mm-hmm. Because your sin doesn't go so far as to affect me, so I can still worship with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the other side, that you know, the more obvious side, which is the people that say, sin is sin, and I don't think we should be allowing sin. I think that we should separate ourselves from sin. And if you're going to engage in slavery, then we're not going to engage and worship with you because we're not on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most dangerous group of those people is what I call the... Um, the apologists for sin. And and I think that there's an ongoing uh, characteristic of uh, just apologizing or coming up with an argument that enables us to say, well, this is okay. Hmm. And one of the things that you see, especially from southern, uh, southern divisions, is they will pull out their best Bible scholars and they'll say, let's, let's come up with an excuse for slavery. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some of their excuses are things like, uh, well, you know, there's slavery in the Old Testament, and God doesn't specifically come out and prohibit slavery in the Old Testament. And, you know, the obvious fallacy for that is, yeah, he does a pretty good job of restricting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, there's a lot of rules around it, and that style of slavery was so different than what slavery had become. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's one of those things that is pretty understandable or if you see once you see it in the old testament if god puts all kinds of rules around things Mm. that are just like um making you jump through hoops to get through it's god's way of saying i don't want to come right out here and tell you don't do this but don't Don't do do this this. well it's a bit like that um i've had we had a uh, conversation once with somebody who is who was trying to justify polygamy uh, because it existed in the Old Testament. And um, the, the response to that was, yeah, it exists in the Old Testament, but not once is it reflected in a positive light. Like, you re- nobody, nobody, there's no, like, this, you know, David married all of these people, and look how great his life was. It was, well, God loved David despite how messed up and broken he was because ultimately his heart was for God. It was always an illustration of how fallen and sinful these characters are almost a reminder to not worship them, worship God instead. Absolutely. And uh, things like that exist to remind the reader that these people aren't demigods who are also to be worshiped. These people are flawed individuals. Look how flawed they are. They, they practice polygamy. Look how flawed they are. They own slaves. Look how flawed they are. They have this sin and that sin. And it's a reminder that there is one God and that the people that we read about in our, in our scriptures are not to be worshipped, only he is. And that's actually a second argument that uh, these apologists would make. They would say, well, Onesimus was a slave yeah. in the book of Philemon, and, and Paul doesn't say, please free Onesimus, this runaway slave that I'm sending back to you into slavery. Uh, you know, I think that you should free him because he's a brother. <laughs> right, but if you actually read Philemon, you know he's not sending him back into slavery. Exactly, exactly, right, <laughs> Yeah. right. Which is, here's the problem with the apologists, right? They, they have to invent or create a situation to justify their sin. Um, and, and it's not necessarily like, okay, I'm going to say something truly controversial. This will be fun. Scripture does not have a passage, a verse that says, you shall not own slaves. Hmm. So I can't point to a passage of Scripture that says, oh, slavery is wrong because it says very plainly, you shall not own slaves. It's, it's an implied covenant based upon the relationship that all men have with God. Right. So if you're looking to, you know, and, and we do this, all, we see this all the time. There's also the, um, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say I can't smoke pot. Right. I had a conversation with a student like that years ago. The Bible doesn't say I can't. And God made plants. Therefore, can't we just use all of them? 
I'm like, well, you're, you've clearly been using too many of those plants if you're getting to that kind of logic from what you read through scripture. But yeah, 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 totally. yeah exactly. Since exactly. there's no direct prohibition, I, can, I have freedom, which is a statement I've said to people. There's no direct prohibition of this. You have freedom. Uh, but there are other things that you can read in, in the context of scripture that would inform you that these things are not pleasing to God. And what, uh, I don't know, this is, I think like the role of a Christian is to please God. And so we should not be looking for the ways in which we can excuse our behavior. We should be looking in the ways in which we can most glorify God. Yeah, I call that lowest common denominator Christianity. It's just enough Christianity to get me in the gate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which, and now you've brought up the third argument that a lot of these, these slave people use. And, and I'm not even going to dignify the, by the way, I'm not even going to dignify the, well, Canaan was, uh, Canaan was committed to slavery and Canaan is from the house of Africa because yeah, that's, that's, that's just painful and it's ugly and it's, it's not even true. Uh, but I think the third argument that they make is, um, well, slavery existed in the day in Jesus' day, and Jesus doesn't speak to slavery in the Gospels. Therefore, Jesus says that slavery is okay. Mm. It's an argument from silence mm -hmm. rather than an argument from uh, an actual out, you know, an actual prohibition or uh, a statement saying that it's uh, okay. And I think that's dangerous because when you argue from silence, you argue for all kinds of negative things that mm -hmm. just don't belong in a Christian's life, don't belong in culture. Right, right. And uh, there are apologists, that, and this is one of those distinctions you see that has continued on into current church culture. And one of those things that divides current denominations is this very argument just with different ingredients. Right. Um, and so depending on where you fall on... Um, a number of social issues. Uh, you can call it uh, abortion, homosexuality, um, you, even, you know, we, we reference the temperance movement. There are churches that are still still very engaged in that conversation. Um, and in all of those places, the people on either side don't necessarily point to chapter and verse. They point to silence or statement. And uh, we're still having this discussion and argument in, in congregations today, which is one of the reasons that churches have some division uh, because there's um, there's a lot of passion on this, and these become pretty divisive issues. Right, and I think the hardest thing in my thinking on this is the way the world looks at our specious arguments, our, our arguments that actually have no validity in them whatsoever. I, I it, it upsets me. I, I watched, for example, a um, I watched a a news commentator one time talking about a current issue, um, the, the issue of homosexuality, and she identified that the church was wrong on um, slavery and on, on race, race um, and identified that the church was wrong on um, women, and now the church was wrong on, uh, on homosexuality as well. A and I looked at that and I said, well, no, which uh, church? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's 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 item one. But you know, even the the invent the invention of um, of race as a divider uh, is has nothing to do with scripture. It has to do with these apologists who are attempting to make this sound like it's acceptable, uh, and using very very soft arguments like, "Well, you know, Jesus never said." Mm -hmm. There's a lot that Jesus never said. And there's a lot that Jesus said that we don't have. Exactly. So, uh, I, you know, now we're, now we're in a place, right, where because the apologists of the 1830s to 1860s made up these very poor arguments on race, because the apologists of the 1930s to the 1950s made up very poor arguments on the role of women in the church, now we're in a situation where what the scripture actually says is called into question because, well, you know, maybe the Bible doesn't say that because, you know, only 17% of the population in the United States has actually read the Bible all the way through. Yeah. So that problem begins to divide the church from that point forward. Yeah, we have a civil war. Yeah, we have this massive conflagration where 
Uh, thousands of men die on both sides over different arguments, but it really all comes down to slavery. That's that's the thing that boiled it all up. Um, I mean, uh, good friends from the South who will tell me that the Civil War was about states' rights, and um, I get that. Mm-hmm. I understand what they're saying, um, but the state right in question here was the state right, right of slavery. owning other yeah. people, and I, I don't see how that how you can actually get past that too well. Right. So that division, it even hangs to this day. Uh, you know, you have, you still have uh, an American Baptist convention, you still have a Southern Baptist convention, and probably about 800 other forms of Baptist out there. So, sure. uh, you know, you have, you still have a small cadre of Southern Methodists who are distinctively different from the Methodist Church USA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, or the United Methodist Church, right? Yeah, this and and this whole thing has always just infuriated me because I, I when I hear this broad brush strokes of you know Christians are anti woman and Christians are racist and like my goodness, like the the change for how we view people of of color, the change in how we view women and their role in society started in the church like yes this all of like the the idea that that um african slavery was evil starts in the church the idea that women have equal standing starts in the church uh but because there are really loud idiots out there historically uh, you know now people get to leverage and weaponize that against the church yeah and uh man that frustrates me yeah very frustrating very frustrating well, I don't want to leave this session on division, though, because, you know, it, we, ha- we fight a civil war. Um, that civil war doesn't necessarily heal church divisions, uh, but some amazing things happen after the war. Uh, the first of those is that uh, the first of many revivals sweeps across the country. And I want to make the, dis- the distinction in my conversation. We've had two great awakenings. Mm. Yeah, we've mentioned this in one of the awakening podcasts, the difference between an awakening and a revival. Can you refresh me on that? Yeah, the difference between an awakening and a revival is that a revival calls believers back into a relationship with Christ. And, uh, you know, as, as believers, you have to understand, uh, if you're listening to our podcast and, and uh you are a, a church person, but you're not not necessarily a believer. Uh, there are times when even Christians will walk away from God, or they'll they'll get uh, a calloused lifestyle. They'll uh, they'll separate themselves from God in many ways, but God doesn't separate Himself from them, hmm. and uh, they'll live their lives in ways that just aren't pleasing to the Lord, and uh, and then God does a great thing because God will send his Holy Spirit and he'll, he'll bring conviction. Um, sometimes he brings a crushing because uh, we get uh, pretty, pretty stuck in our sin and God sometimes has to, has to break us on those things. But he'll bring what is called revival. It's where Christians return to God and return to their, to their faith and they trust God and they put God first in their lives. That's what happens in a revival. What distinguishes the revivals from the awakenings is that the awakenings were issues where people who were not Christians, who had not put their faith and trust in Jesus, uh, suddenly saw the necessity of having faith in Christ, uh, or if, you know, from the other perspective, suddenly understood the grace of God that was being offered to them, mm-hmm. and, and they <laughs> responded to that grace uh, through faith, and they trust Christ. And so there's this huge growing number of Christians in the Great Awakening. There's a huge growing number of Christians in the Second Great Awakening that's different from a revival where um, you actually may not have a... A revival is a zero-sum game. Yeah, so it's not that like the percentage of believers changes in the United States, but the percentage of believers who are showing up in church again changes. Exactly, exactly. And and if you look at that, I, I introduced uh, just a thesis, a hypothesis of mine. I think that you see a major revival in the United States uh, every twenty to thirty years um, over the last uh, since eighteen sixty. Mm-hmm. So every twenty to thirty years, you see a major revival 
where there is a turning back of, of Christians who had otherwise walked away from God. Uh, you see a turning back of those people into church, and you see a growth in the local church uh, as all of those people come back. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of times that's generational change. Sometimes, well, a lot of times it's cultural change and world events. And yeah, we can, we'll get into those in future podcasts. Yeah, too. yeah. So, I mean, I, I started that concept in 1870 with D.L. Moody. Hmm. Um, D.L. Moody's a local Boston boy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if, uh, if you go downtown uh, to Boston, we're about, uh, we're about 30 minutes north of Boston, and, and there's a street that actually doesn't even exist anymore because it's kind of been removed for the government center. Uh, but just this little itty-bitty strip of street, and there's a brass plaque where D.L. Moody was a shoe salesman here in Boston. And uh, Moody uh, is, uh, is attending a Sunday school, and he accepts Christ as his Savior, changes his life. He, uh, he goes into the Civil War. He comes out of the Civil War, changed man, wants to see others come to know Christ as Savior. And D.L. Moody is an earth shaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, other than the fact that he weighed over 300 pounds. Uh, <laughs> so when he walked, he probably was an earth shaker. But he, uh, I have no room to talk on that. But, um, <laughs> but he, he was an earth shaker. He, he changed his preaching style, his, his music style. The things that D.L. Moody brought to this nation and around the world changed the perspective of men and brought a lot of already existing Christians back into Christianity and filled up churches. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so out of that, we see, um, you know, we've had this sort of splintering leading into the Civil War. And post-Civil War, the nation's trying to heal. And along with that comes the right man at the right time. What a shock that God would bring the right man at the right time. Isn't it amazing? And so you have, you have Moody who steps in and sees almost in the same form as the circuit preacher of old or the, uh, the tent meeting of old where he's functioning outside of a denomination and impacting people's hearts and beginning this movement that extend, that has great legacy that will hit uh, in, in, a future episode, in a future episode, I imagine. Um, but he's beginning this movement of, be, of, of traveling and preaching, uh, bringing new music, and, uh, and people's lives are changed, and they're walking away from these revival moments and, and finding a revitalized life and moving back into their churches, and sometimes finding churches that are dead and, right. and, and having, um, having to make that decision, do we change this dead church or create a new church? Um, so church planting starts you know, coming back, and, and more new churches are planted because of this changed heart moment. Yeah, in in our nation, and so with that comes some new denominations and some new, um, f- you know, focuses, foci, foci, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, of the church, yeah, and and especially you know, uh, now you're going to have a couple of things going on. And here's the other side about Moody. Okay, Moody is also a a non-denominationalist. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's working, he's working outside of the church, but hoping to bring the church together. Now, there's two aspects of that. One of them is that because he's working outside of the church and desiring to bring the church together, uh, he does foster a spirit of unity in a lot of local towns and communities. Uh, there's no longer, you know, uh, we I pastored in the Midwest for a long time, and every church in the, every town, excuse me, in the Midwest has a Baptist church and a Methodist church, mm-hmm. And uh, it, you find under Moody's work, because there's a common ground in Moody, there's a common music with Moody, there's a common message with Moody, uh, there's a common relationship that springs up amongst people in communities, and you even find, yeah, Baptists and Methodist churches working together. Mm-hmm. But one of the sad things about that unity is that there are churches already at this point that have lost their focus, and lost their interest in serving God. But Moody is a hot commodity. Hmm. No one wants to be left behind uh, if D.L. Moody's coming to town. So one of the things that you see is you see a lot of dead churches uh, jumping on the Moody bandwagon. And, and just as an observation, right? 
Uh, we talked about revival as being predominantly for Christians who need to be brought back into a proper relationship with God. Uh, there are still a lot of people who come to know Christ as their Savior through revival meetings, mm-hmm. uh, through people like D.L. Moody. Uh, so one of the things that you're going to see happen is you're going to see Moody actually reaching out to some of these dead churches and saying, I'm coming to town. Do you want to sponsor this? Do you want to be a participant in it? And they're all for it because they see it as a way of um, increasing their uh, volunteer forces. They see it as a way of increasing their financial structure. Uh, all of the things that uh, kind of are negative and that we don't actually think of with church. But Moody does a great job drawing those people in because he's looking to see people saved mm-hmm. too. Yep. And discipled because he knows he's got to move on. And if you can get a local church involved in your, in your meeting, then there's a place for these saved people to go. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So here, by the way, here's a great story about Moody that I just, I have remembered this ever since I heard it. So Moody actually pastored a church um, in the rough, tough uh, frontier town of Chicago um, in the 1870s. And uh, the, the saying goes, or the story goes, that uh, Moody was preaching a story, uh, preaching the life of Jesus, and uh, he, he finished his sermon on the crucifixion of Jesus and as he was finishing this, his sermon on the crucifixion, he said, and next week we will talk about the resurrection. And the story goes that as they were praying and closing out the church service, that the fire alarms were already ringing in the city of Chicago, and the great Chicago fire would burn down most of the city of Chicago and take the lives of many of the people who were in that church that night. Hmm. And D.O. Moody made a promise to himself and to God that he would never, ever ever again preach a sermon that did not include the resurrection of Jesus hmm. mm-hmm. because that was that was the driving force and is the driving force of so much that we do in uh, the local church uh, you know it's, it's the gospel message as Paul tells us in first uh, Corinthians 15 that you know I received of the Lord that that Christ died for men's sins according to the scripture he was buried and he rose again on the third day, according to the scripture. And we can't uh, preach a good sermon unless we're preaching a sermon that includes the resurrection. And that's one of those things that Moody learned through a very hard situation yeah. and then passed along. Yeah, and so which creates another um, turning point for churches, because I think a lot of churches, we talk a lot about social issues here, and, and churches in this era of a lot of them become driven by their social issues. Yes. And, and they become social organizations at heart. Yeah, yeah. And when, when you see this transformation in Moody and his preaching and, and his passion, some churches are reminded of that. Some churches obviously never left that. But a lot of churches are reminded of that, and they're reoriented back to the gospel. Um, because it's really easy for us to drift into good worldly things um, and forget our primary purpose of the gospel right. and, and living motivated lives by the gospel. And so you see a lot of churches who come back very passionate about preaching the gospel and other churches that don't catch that vision and remain very passionate about the social issues, which creates another soft division in the United States church. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is almost a good time for one of my Disney analogies. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had many of those yet? No, we haven't had a wow. single one. So. Wow, I can't believe we've made it this so, far in. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Yeah, so so actually it, I was thinking about this this week because you've got the social issues. And, and um, you know, uh, the United States becomes a, a socially concerned nation in the 1830s to 1870s. And d- do you realize that the leading country um, in charitable giving in the world is the United States, and we've been that for decades. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned that earlier, and I, I've seen this firsthand. I, I was in Haiti a couple of years after a major earthquake, um, not even a couple of years, it might have been a year after an earthquake that just leveled Port-au-Prince. And I remember going in, and in that, in Port-au-Prince were all of these tent cities, and um, there were primarily U.S. aid um, written on the side of these tarps, a couple of Canada aids, which you know they're 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 pretty similar in heart. Um, we we share a lot of common bond with our with our neighbors a few hours north of here, 
Um, and then the rest of the tents were all Samaritans, purse tents. Right, right. Because the church is there and driving it. So right. you have all, all of those things, right? Like in a, in a, it, it, they are, Haiti is a neighbor country to us, but you get that in almost every natural disaster worldwide. The first people to show up are, are usually the United States and Christians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, $245 billion last year uh, in the United States spent on uh, charities and mm. given to charities, um, which amounts to uh, crazy, right? It's like over $14,000 per person mm. that uh, goes from our nation uh, into the hands of charitable sources. Now, I grant you some of that's like, you know, the ASPCA and so on, sure. but a lot of it But helps. still a heart of giving. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So so here's here's my Disney analogy. For those of you who... Uh, who aren't acquainted with uh, Marsh Corner and with me in particular? I, I just, I'm just a big fan of uh, of Walt Disney and the Disney Company. So here's the analogy: um, Walt Disney uh, started an entertainment company. Now he started out as an animator. He uh, he draws pictures. You know, we have uh, Mortimer the uh, mm-hmm. Mortimer, mm-hmm. and that he comes well before. Um, well before Mickey. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, did you know that Walt didn't draw Mickey? He drew the original, but then handed it over to Ub Iwerks, who actually drew all the cartoons. Huh. Yeah. So Walt is an animator, but he's really an entertainer. His focus is is uh, is on telling good stories, and he does some creative things. Even in the beginning, he does uh, mixed media where he has live action with with uh, animation. He develops this huge. Uh, movie the- movie studio, you know the Walt Disney the the Walt Disney Productions, and and he's he's into making movies. But when you look at Walt Disney today, when you look at the Disney Corporation today, it's still an entertainment company, but it has all of these different divisions, right? It has a it has a television entertainment section in ABC Television and the Disney Channel and all of that other stuff. It it has a uh, it still makes movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it still uh, it prints books. Uh, most people don't realize that the Walt Disney Company probably prints uh, almost sixty percent of the books in the United States uh, through its publishing house and through its ownership of other publishing houses. Mm. Uh, it owns music. Um, for those of you who are Christians and you're really into contemporary Christian music. Uh, if you are listening to Word or Sparrow Records, uh, Word and Sparrow Records are labels that are owned by the Walt Disney Company. Hmm. Um, but but here's the thing, right? I'm I'm a Disney fan. I love all of this stuff about Disney. But I I you know when you think of Disney, people think of Central Florida. Central Florida. They or think Southern of Walt California Disney World or, or yeah. Disneyland. You know that's. Disneyland has become synonymous with uh, a place of escape, and uh, and you know we we all know those awesome um, those awesome uh, commercials that show up after ma- any major sporting event where you know what are you going to do now? I'm going to Disney World, right? So Disney World has its own following. The Disney parks have their own following. Um, just go out on YouTube sometime and just type in Disney World. And there are people who spend their lives and get paid, this is crazy, and get paid to walk around Disney World every day with a video camera and show you what they're doing and what they're eating. And thousands, thousands of people follow those videos on any given given day. Um, Disney World is not the driving force of the Disney Corporation. Now, that's a pretty scary statement to people who love Disney World. Um, Disney World is not the primary reason that Disney exists. Disney exists to entertain, and in the essence, really, when you get back to it, it's a movie company. Mm -hmm. They make movies. Yeah, so then to pull that analogy into talking about where we're at with the church, similar thing. Like out of our 
out of our love for Jesus, historically, a lot of really wonderful things have have been born. Right. To you know, you can do like one to one comparisons of music and 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 literature, um, but you even have things like the, the the missions movement, and you have things like the. Uh, um, you, we've talked about some of these other major world social movements, issues. like social issues. Uh, there are things like you know caring for the poor and the disadvantaged, like the uh, organizations like the Salvation Army. Uh, the Salvation Army is actually a church denomination. Yeah. Um, and, hospitals. Uh, hospitals. Yeah. Like Pri- so many Baptist hospital, Presbyterian hospital, uh, all of you know, so many hospitals that exist in the United States, started by church by by the church colleges. You know, the Ivy League were all once Christian colleges, right? Like, all, you know, so many colleges that exist today started as Christ- the movement that came out of this heart that had been changed by the work of Jesus. But all of those things are accessories to the gospel. Right. Uh, but it's really easy to get passionate about a particular silo, uh, a particular piece of the whole and forget the driving force of the whole, which you know is that almost that reminder of the beginning of Romans, Romans one and two, where um, Paul is outlining the need for Jesus and his interaction in the world. And one of the things that he mentions in that is that um, people's natural inclination is to exchange the work of the Creator and instead worship His artwork. Right, right. And we are also guilty of that. I mean, that is the systemic problem of humanity, that we have all worshipped God's creation rather than the God who made it. But we are also really still susceptible to that, even as transformed people. We'll restart to worship and uh, worship the idol of the work of the church rather than worshiping the truth of the gospel. Exactly, And so there are a lot of churches that exist still to this day that are distracted by the good things and have forgotten the primary thing. Right. And a lot of Christians who, you know, they, they want to be involved in uh, a social experience. They want to be involved in something that's going to change their community. So they'll go to a church, they'll look for a church that has a great social outreaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do they feed the poor? Do they have a soup kitchen? Do, and, and those are all wonderful things that, yeah, take the equation down, right? Yeah. It's like it's like going to Disney World and riding the Peter Pan ride. Well, Peter Pan is something that you know Walt did as a as a cartoon, and and it's great. But I have people, I know people who are upset when Disney wants to put some of their intellectual property into the parks. I mean, what if they take took part of uh, Animal Kingdom, which is the zoo section of uh, Disney World in Florida? What if they took that and they put Zootopia in there? And people would go, oh, no, they're, they're ruining the park because they're putting their own stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, uh, I'm going to feed you at my soup kitchen, but I'm going to explain the gospel to you first. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach to you and tell you what it means to know Jesus as your Savior. And there are people who respond to that by saying, oh, no, how can you impose your Christian views on these people who are just hungry? Yeah. I, uh, I served in a church in my past that had a, a, a wonderful soup kitchen, and uh, um, that was a tension that the volunteers of that, that um, kitchen had to work with and wrestle with. There are people who would be attracted to our church because of that great ministry, and uh, who would be very involved in it, and there are others who were very involved in that ministry, and they came at that ministry from different sides. Some would came at it because they had a heart for the poor and wanted to feed the poor, and would become uncomfortable that this was a ministry of the church, and it had a bigger, bigger um, importance than just the feeding and equipping of the poor, where there were others who were involved in that ministry who came at that from a gospel perspective and said, this is just a vehicle for Jesus. And I need to make sure that these people who are coming who are on, on the regular know Jesus also. Right. And uh, so we have those tensions inside the church, but we also have those tensions as, at a larger level too. Right. So you have a guy like Moody who starts an orphanage here in Massachusetts um, who, uh, because he wants the gospel to be preached to orphans and, and he wants to minister and meet the needs of orphans. And he starts a, a, a Bible training center in Chicago because he wants to raise up the next generation of pastors, uh, and he uh, he does all of these great things. And when he dies, 
um, because he's he's gathered around him these uh, people who are denominational mm-hmm. rather than knowing God. Mm. All of that gets divided up, mm-hmm. and you know we still have Moody Bible Institute still doing great. We still have Moody Church in in Chicago still doing great. Those two went to evangelical godly leaders who uh, followed the heart of Moody and said we're gonna we're gonna do these great things. But um, you know the orphanage is gone because the orphanage went to uh, an individual who didn't have the gospel heart that Moody had. He had a he had a compassion heart, mm-hmm. which is great, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's not it's not what keeps the church going. It's not what keeps the church donation and charity going. Right, right. So that brings us uh, really into the uh, Industrial Revolution, doesn't it? Well, 1870s here in the United States, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the 1870s, 1880s, it's kind of the age of immigration mm-hmm. and uh, the age of industrializa- industrialization here in the United States. Um, so so I'm, I'm guessing with that dynamic change in culture, we're going to see a dynamic shift in the church we, again. We really are. Yeah, absolutely. Some really amazing things, some interesting things happen in that 1880 to 1900 time frame that are huge influencers today. Let's just say that the largest denomination in the United States springs out of that 1880 uh, industrial revolution here in the U.S. and uh, immigration force. All right. We'll look forward to hitting that next time we're together. Um, if you've enjoyed uh, our time, if something has been said that's really uh, sparked your imagination or your wonderment, uh, feel free to uh, check into our Facebook page again uh, or send us an email and uh, let us know uh, and communicate back with us so that we know you're out there. And uh, we'll try and uh, follow up with those things and, and connect with those. And perhaps it hits some of your questions um, and respond to them in a future episode. Um, if you get the chance on whatever player you are listening to this podcast on, uh, hit a, uh, a review for us. That can be something as simple as just clicking like the rightmost star and letting people know that this was worthwhile and they should listen to it. Um, but the best thing you could do is to take a link of the episode and uh, send it off to a friend and let them know why you thought they, sh- they would want to hear it. And, uh, and share this with others because uh, we, we would love for this to expand and grow and bless other people. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Inside the Pastor's Study Podcast, hosted by Pastors George and Jeremy Stevens. Cover art by Caitlin Gallagher. Music by Sammy Kay. To find out more about us, head to marshcorner.com.